This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. It's August tomorrow, and so today I'm posting a highly relevant rerun. My June 2018 interview with historian Matthew Fry Jacobson on his hyphenated Americans magnum opus, Roots 2, White Ethnic Revival in Post-Civil Rights America. Last August, I needed a vacation and time to finish my book. This year, I need a vacation and time to work on building a statewide left-wing political organization in Rhode Island. 2020. There you have it. I do have some really great interviews coming up in the next few weeks. Kelly Lytle Hernandez on her book Migra, Rafael Randall and Andre Celine on cadre formation in general and youth organizing in particular, and then Matthew Countryman on Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia, and then a whole lot more, including Bathsheba DeMuth on Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait, and Nicole Ashoff on The Smartphone Society. Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age. I'm posting this old interview today not just because I need a break, but because Columbus statues are getting toppled while many Italian-Americans fight to keep them standing. Which makes you wonder, why are so many Italian-Americans so attached to the icon of a murderous colonialist from 15th century Genoa, an independent republic with strong commercial ties to present-day Spain, centuries before a country called Italy even existed? Today, it's rare that any Columbus Day event has a whole lot to do with the historical Christopher Columbus. These are celebrations of Ersatz Italian identity a few generations removed, an incorporation into American whiteness secured through an embrace of genocide's chintzy simulacra. To say that Italians are not engaged with Columbus the man, of course, is not to say it's harmless. As Jacobson notes, this transmorgification of Columbus from the inception point of settler genocide into the father of all immigrants was part of a process that went into overdrive during the mid-20th century that relocated our nation's origin story from Plymouth Rock to Ellis Island. From the brazen and self-confident white supremacism of Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt to the nation of immigrants myth that performed multicultural inclusivity amid the politics of Cold War decolonization. 
It functioned to absolve white America of its sins, and in doing so, to naturalize racialized class and social inequality and legitimate the war on so-called illegal immigration. It's not that Italian Americans are somehow more racist than the median white American. It's that the miscomprehension of who Columbus was and what he means is ideologically fundamental. Statue defenders warn that iconoclasm will erase our historical memory. It's quite clear that the opposite is true. Southern Italians who immigrated to this country in huge numbers during the late 19th and early 20th centuries were targeted for racist violence in the South, particularly Louisiana, where many came to do low-wage work on the docks and in the fields. They were portrayed as degenerate and inherently criminal. Italians were often consigned to the black side of the color line, and many made their lives on that side of the color line, living among and marrying black people. In 1892, President Benjamin Harrison proclaimed Columbus Day a one-time celebration after 11 Italian immigrants were lynched in Louisiana, prompting a fierce protest from the Italian government. Italians were often treated like black people. But they were still white, however qualified that whiteness became, and they had a foreign government concerned about the treatment of their nationals. This murderous episode and their reaction to it helped begin to lay the groundwork for Italian Americans moving firmly onto the other side of the color line after the generally nativist and very much anti-Italian national origins quota laws of the 1920s were finally repealed in 1965. Italian Americans emerged as white ethnics, cherished members of a newly conceived nation of immigrants. By contrast, black Americans did not have a foreign government advocating for their interests. Instead, they had an American government that was systematically aligned against them. And, after 1965, they still did. So did indigenous people. So did Latinos. The desire to escape into the fortress of American whiteness was not unique to Italians. Many Puerto Ricans, for example, tried and failed to do just that mid-century, as my recent guest Johanna Fernandez recounts. Puerto Ricans' failure to assimilate as white ethnics in the face of white racism is what allowed for the young lords to take root in alliance with black radicalism. We have recently seen an inverse dynamic in Italy, where many southern Italians who have for so long been racially vilified by the Northern League have joined forces with a remade Lega's powerful, expansive nationalist racism targeting African migrants. Racism has always been made within our brutally unequal world political economic system, from Columbus's genocide to the 20th century whitewashing of Columbus that helped expand whiteness so as to remake and reinforce the color line. A different politics in this country might see Italian-Americans honoring their actual ancestors, the victims of the 1891 New Orleans lynching, instead of the mythic Columbus. Identifying with white racism makes identifying with a multiracial and global working class impossible. Ideology that seems rooted in principle, of course, is in reality founded, if often in indirect, unconscious, and obscure ways in material conditions of existence. And so, transforming society requires that we not only topple statues, but their foundations as well. Briefly, if you depend on this podcast for in-depth left-wing analysis of everything, please join your fellow listeners in supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. 
We can only make this podcast and give it away free to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to do so contribute. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Anyhow, here it is from the archives, my interview with Matthew Fry Jacobson on Roots 2, starting with my brief original introduction. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Who exactly are white ethnics? How, why, and when did Americans of Irish, Italian, Polish, Jewish ancestry decide that their hyphenated Americanism was not only critical to their own identity, but to the identity of Americans, or more specifically, white Americans, as a whole? The answer to this question, it turns out, furnishes a key to unraveling the last half-century plus of American politics, including, critically, the white, racist, conservative, anti-immigrant reaction whose most toxic embodiment is to be found in the very person of our current president. My guest today is Matthew Fry Jacobson, the author of several books on race in U.S. political culture, including Roots Two: White Ethnic Revival in Post-Civil Rights America, that's the book that we're going to be discussing today, and also Whiteness of a Different Color, European Immigrants, and the Alchemy of Race. He teaches American Studies, African American Studies, and History at Yale. Without further delay, here's Matthew Fry Jacobson. Matthew Fry Jacobson, welcome to The Dig. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, what a big and incredible book. <laughs> Thank you again. <laughs> <laughs> By the mid-20th century, every American who could claim to be white was aggressively doing so, and without any sort of national caveat or modifier. But then white ethnics, as you write, quit the melting pot. And one of the major reasons why was the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. What are white ethnics and what happened? Uh, so white ethnics are usually the third or sometimes the fourth generation uh, American-born descendants of um, European immigrants who came uh, to the U.S. really between uh, the Irish famine in the 1840s and the the kind of closing of the gates in the 1920s. Um, 26 million people came to the U.S. between the Civil War and, uh, and World War I. Um, so that's the bulk of this population. But then you go back even further, and, um, and Ireland had been, and even Germany, actually, since the 40s, had been sending huge numbers, um, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, ultimately millions of people to American shores. So then, you know, several generations down the pike, um, their descendants, um, American-born, English-speaking, American-schooled, um, knowing for the most part no other country but the U.S., um, are comfortably American in, in pretty much every way there is to be, uh, including their white privilege, um, but do not perhaps feel themselves to be living the lives that 
would seem to be described by the phrase white privilege. So in the mid-60s and after, um, a lot of the white ethnics, um, they seize on the model that is, uh, that is available now in the civil rights era, the model of, of um, African-Americans um, articulating a new kind of group standing in American uh, political culture. Um, so white ethnics seize that and start to advance a kind of particularistic um, group identity based on their Italianness or their Jewishness or their Irishness that at once um, kind of uh, it can become a language for a particular grievance. Um, it can become a language for the disavowal of white privilege. Um, sometimes it's arrayed directly against um, civil rights. Uh, as in the, the busing crisis in Boston, for example, um, where Irishness was deployed um, as one of the kind of languages of, of um, resisting uh, the integration of the schools. Um, there are a lot of different ways that the politics of it can play out, but in a kind of sociological sense, it, it, it springs out of the mid 19th or the mid 20th century as uh, a, a, a disavowal of previous assimilation and as a political response to the surprise movement. In the early early 20th century, not long before, this would have been entirely unthinkable. Hyphenated Americanism was t- tantamount to un-Americanism particularly in the teens and 20s during mm-hmm. the heyday of eugenics and the national origins quota system. Well, that's right. What's interesting, though, so that is true, and, and especially around World War I and after the kind of um, the America first, the 100% Americanism, like there are all these campaigns to, to quickly absorb the immigrants as, as quickly as possible and um, to have them disavow all, all, you know, all ties to foreign lands and and all kind of, of cultural ties to um, to the old world's ways. Um, so there's a kind of enforced assimilation, um, which is enforced also by the immigration law, which really shuts down uh, immigration from, from most parts of the world um, pretty dramatically. Um, so there is this kind of enforced assimilation. And the immigrants themselves wanted nothing more than to be accepted and to become a part of American life. Um, what's interesting, though, is that there is this uh, literature, mostly a progressive literature in the 1940s that in retrospect looks like the road not taken. There is a kind of nation of nations um, idiom of expressing Americanism through the particularities of race and ethnicity. Um, Louis Adamic was probably the most famous writer in this vein, Um, but there there were several people at mid-century who were kind of making this argument um, that was pretty much decimated. I say it's the road not taken. That was not that was not the popular view, certainly among uh, American politicians, but but in general, not really among immigrant groups themselves. There was this kind of push to Americanize as completely as as possible to the extent that, I mean, you know, most second generation. I mean, people, the first American-born generation of their families who were who grew up in in immigrant households often did not even learn the language of their parents and their grandparents, even if it was spoken in the home, they were, they were kind of kept from learning it. Um, so the push to Americanize was, was definitely very powerful um, in, the, in the earlier part of the century. I, th- I think the tagline amidst the patriotic fervor of World War I was 100% Americanism. Exactly. The most consequential thing about the white ethnic revival, you write, wasn't that it changed 
individuals' identities, though it certainly did, but that it changed the identity of Americans more broadly. And it changed those identities or that identity in what was often a quite reactionary way because it it wasn't just a revolt against wasp whiteness, though, though it was, but, but something that cleansed American whites of the sins of slavery mm-hmm. and settler colonialism. You write that it that it shifted the country's origin story from Plymouth Rock to Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. Say a little about about how it sh- the white ethnic revival shaped American politics on the right and to a lesser degree on the left from the 1950s on. Sure, I mean I think that for when I was doing this research, that was one of the turning points for me and, and a real kind of moment of realization because um, I. You know, it was the the so-called ethnic revival, which you could date to kind of the late 60s and on into the 70s. It was there was no question that it was experienced by most people who experienced it as a very individual kind of thing. It was a kind of interiority um, identity story, a kind of an individual quest for origins, um, a kind of family romance. It was, it was really experienced in individual terms or maybe familial ones at the very most. But what I discovered in looking at the period was that it, it really was institutionalized in a, in a thousand different ways. And so, um, it becomes institutionalized in the academic disciplines, for example, in the rising literature of, of American ethnicity. It becomes institutionalized in popular culture through the the kind of uh, Ellis Island uh, and steerage narratives of Hollywood film uh, and, and television programming. It becomes institutionalized in the, you know, the National Park Service reopening Ellis Island, not as an immigration station, but as uh, a tourist destination. Um, so that, I mean, the, the identity quest um, multiplied by the millions of people who were undergoing it at the time, and then added to that all of these institutions that were kind of mobilizing around that identity quest, really added up to um, a complete rewrite of the national narrative, you know, such that um, when Ellis Island opened as a tourist destination in the early 1990s, and that, that was the, the culmination of a decades-long process that really starts all the way back in 1965. Um, but when it reopens as a museum and a tourist destination, more, more people visit Ellis Island as tourists than had ever come to it as immigrants each year. Um, wow. which I think just says something really important about the, the chord that that was striking and the and. Um, and the story that people wanted to tell about, you know, as you said, a kind of origin story of of where this country comes from and what its what its past consists of. Your book covers a lot of ground, and you 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 write a lot about pop culture and the politics of pop, pop culture, and it seems like the most important pivotal pop cultural moment in this whole story of the white ethnic revival is a television series based on a book that is not about white people at all, um, Roots by Alex Haley, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was aired in 1977, I think. 77, yes, the spring a, spring of 77. An estimated 80 million people watched it, and immediately afterwards, libraries were swamped, not with people rushing to study black history and figure out how the this country had been you know, so horrific for such a long time to people of African ancestry, but but rather to research their own genealogies. Mm-hmm. It seems like these people were looking 
to their family histories for an escape route out of the present of, of whiteness. What was going on there? And, and explain a little about the Roots phenomenon. Sure. Well, there are a couple different threads to it. I mean, first of all, so Roots, um, you know, Roots is a spectacular cultural event. Um, but the culture itself had been kind of moving towards something like that for a number of years um, through the popularity of kind of the immigration story in, in um, Hollywood film, for example. Um, so it didn't come out of the blue. Um, but what Roots did do was it, uh, it kind of it, it made a very compelling um, saga out of the story of generations going, you know, from, from Africa to present day America. And the chord that it struck among most white viewers, and this is one of the great ironies, because this was, I mean, Roots really was the, the first truly kind of, um, enormous airing of the history of slavery that, that Americans had experienced. I mean, slavery was barely even taught in schools at this point. You know, if you look at a, a, a textbook, you know, even a high school textbook from uh, the 1960s or early 70s, you're, you're not going to find more than a paragraph or two about slavery. So the idea that 80 million people would turn on their TV sets, whatever, I think it was 11 nights in a row or 12, it was a, a series that ran over two weeks. Um, you know, that, that 80 million people would sit down every night and watch this saga of slavery and freedom unfold before them is kind of astonishing just in the terms of, of the popularity of black history. But the thing that is capturing many of them is not the blackness of the history or even the slavery story, but just the romance of generations. And so um, uh, people, people start um, really hungry, or people had been hungry, but it gives people a the, the genealogical project that Roots represents gave people a new, a new way to direct those energies and to think about um, about their own family saga. Uh, as a writer in the nation put it, everybody wants a village to look back to, uh, and some for some that village was in County Cork, and for some it was in the you know, it was the old shtetl in Tsarist Russia, and for some it was in Greece. Um, but white viewers across the country kind of took the roots model and turned it inward on their own family histories and their own stories. And that, and that I think also kind of exacerbated the, the racial politics that were inherent in the, in uh, the white ethnic revival, because it was, again, it was another kind of turning away from the civil rights project of, of um, the 1960s and, and after. Film series that had more straightforwardly, messed up racial politics was was rocky and i lived in philly for a long time and weirdly enough like a few weeks i think before i moved to philly i lived in ecuador and was on a bus day-long bus trip across the country and had to watch the entire every single rocky movie dubbed in spanish (laughs) right before i moved to philly but um it's about a a white underdog um and the italian stallion from south philly Who's, who's downtrodden and facing Apollo Creed, who's a black boxer who runs the show. Explain a little about Rocky and how it reflected the the politics of the, the emerging politics of the time around issues like affirmative action. Sure. Yeah, well, Rocky is in some ways the, the prototypical Roots era story in that it is um, 
you know, it's it's set in exactly the kind of poor white neighborhoods that um, that are the stuff of white ethnic romance in these years, for one thing. And the villain is like this the the perfect kind of of um, black villain for that era and for that. He's haughty and arrogant. Exactly. It narrativizes a kind of white grievance that that um, had been kind of nascently expressed in in a huge proportion of the the ethnic revival. The idea that no, we are not we are not sharing in white privilege. We're we're among we're among the nation's victims. And yet, you know, we have it in us to be heroic. I mean, that's the other thing about Rocky Balboa is he's both he's 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 downtrodden in a way that disproves civil rights claims. Um, but he's he's a hero that that people can hold up and, um, you know, as a, as a hero. So he becomes I mean, that that film, I guess, is especially the first one, but the first few in the in the Rocky Balboa series really become um, kind of iconic expressions of the the politics of grievance that is embedded in the white ethnic revival. Um, another film, um, Flashdance, which was once called Rocky in Toe Shoes, but it's this similar kind <laughs> of thing. It's this this white ethnic dancer. She's in Pittsburgh by day. She works as a welder. Um, she wants to go to to conservatory and study dance. And uh, you know, and it's 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 basically the Rocky story. What's interesting in that one is the the dance moves that actually um, win her a spot in conservatory are things that she she observed and stole from break dancers, black break dancers on a Pittsburgh street corner. So there's so there's the the kind of the notion of white theft of 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 black cultural forms is tacitly uh, embedded in the in the story as well, although it certainly isn't the point of the story. You're, you're not supposed to even notice that that happened. Um, but all of these stories are just imbricated with um, with a sense of, of grievance and tension around the kind of racial issues that have, have become um, central to American political discourse, you know, since about 1963. So it's sort of like an uncritical version of Paris is Burning. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or unconsciously so. Um, there's another kind of chunk of white ethnic pop culture and really like going through your book it's like wow these are these are really like the biggest films of of over these decades fiddler on the roof mm-hmm. the godfather mm-hmm. grease mm-hmm. saturday night fever you could i'm sure list a dozen or two more and and you write that's what that one thing that's so remarkable is that in so many of these films all of the white ethnics in all of their supposed particularities because particularity is supposed to be the point were represented very similarly. Yes. So there is a, an almost um, a kind of generic representation of the white ethnic, even though, as you say, the, the point is supposed to be the opposite. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and that, I think that, um, I guess, I mean, that's kind of where I suppose where the, the, the psyche and the market intersect. right? So, so the, the Jewish writer can create the shtetl story and call it Fiddler on the Roof. But by the time it's a production, you know, being, being, you know, made for millions of dollars to be, uh, to be screened nationwide for a popular audience, um, the meaning of Jewishness has been kind of made entirely compatible with a range of other kind of ethnic particularities. 
you don't write about this because it's a little outside of the scope of your book, but it just comes to mind as sort of what, what Borat was about in terms of being from Kazakhstan, I think, right. um, because it, as far as Americans are concerned, it doesn't matter. You're from... It's all- Yes, it's like in 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 medieval cartography. Whenever they uh, when they came to a border and they didn't know it was on the other side of it, they would just write "Here be dragons." <laughs> and there's there's a kind of "Here be dragons" way that that Americans, including Americans, here be old country, <laughs> whose families hail from these places. I mean, there's just there's a kind of emptiness of these spaces that can be filled in with imagination. Let's talk about a little bit about the the early years of how this this picture of white ethnics started getting filled in. A really critical early moment is John F. Kennedy. I think, is he a senator at the time when he does writes the book? He's a senator when he writes A Nation of Immigrants. Which in 1958. Is, yes. And that's, that book is really the opening salvo of a political project that will end after his death, but it will end with the signing of the, the 1965 Immigration uh, Act, which which undoes the really harsh closures of the the 1920s act, which had really closed the gates um, almost entirely. And, and Kennedy's view is that, um, that, um, you know, not only is, is this a nation of immigrants, not only is uh, America's role as the kind of refuge of the world is, you know, that's an important part of our national identity. um, But that it's a really good, it's a, it's a, 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 it's a, it's what the nation owes its greatness to. And so a nation of immigrants is a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a payon to, to all the great things that the immigrants brought to our shores. Um, and almost entirely European, by the way, I think he tips his hat in, you know, a few paragraphs here and there to groups who weren't European, but it was very much a book about, uh, about his ancestors from Ireland, about the, the people from elsewhere in Europe. Um, so, you know, kind of like... And it's a bestseller, right? It's a bestseller. It becomes, yes, it's a bestseller. And it's a it's a book that really does alter the, the nature of American discourse in that, you know, it's written in, a, in that period when 100% assimilationism is, is, is the norm and is kind of policed pretty heavily. Uh, and so he's arguing something different. And, um, you know, that book, it's meant to popularize a different kind of way of thinking about immigration as an issue. And it's meant to start a legislative process. And it does. Uh, it's a process that outlives him. But when Johnson signs the, the new Immigration Act uh, in 1965, he's really he's fulfilling the promise that that Kennedy had made and had begun in a nation of immigrants. So those those are really critical years, 19, you know, 57, 58 uh, to 63 to 65. Um, it's, and he it's, goes to and he goes to Ireland um, he goes to, to, to Limerick, which is just astonishing. I mean, everyone remembers um, Ich bin ein Berliner. Um, but, you know, a few days after that, he's in Ireland and it's it's trumpeted as his return. And what people meant was not that he personally had been to Ireland before and was going back, but that that his 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 ancestors had come from there. And that's what the return meant. And it was it was celebrated. Um, just it's it's almost impossible to overstate the enthusiasm on both sides of, of the Atlantic for what that what that meant. Uh, what it meant to Ireland, what it meant uh, to the U.S., and it was again. I mean, it was it was an event that kind of shifted the 
the way Americans thought of their own country because it shifted the way in thinking about how to articulate Americanism. So in his speech in Ireland, um, you know, fresh, fresh from, you know, having peered over the wall in Berlin with his binoculars, he's, uh, he's now at, uh, before the Irish parliament and he's talking about, um, the special gifts that the Irish brought to the U.S. and the gift of the, the kind of thirst for freedom that could have only been learned uh, in the context of the, the kind of Celtic travails of the, of the Irish nation uh, as a special gift to the U.S. that really gave a, a certain burnish to Americanism itself. So he's, he's talking about Americanism in a wholly new way. Um, but he's also going, he's also talking about, you know, what it means to be, um, to be a scion of Ireland and to occupy the white house. And so it's, uh, it's just a very, it's a very different way of conceiving citizenship of, from, you know, anything that had been articulated, certainly by a president. Um, but, and he says, and he says, this is not the land of my birth, but it is it is the land for which I hold the greatest affection. I yeah. mean, that would have been considered utterly treasonous a few de- yeah. and when you think not about, long before. Right. And when you think about, I mean, even Catholicism itself, when you look at the election of 1928 and, and uh, the, how Catholicism was portrayed in, in that election um, versus um, not only in 1960, a Catholic winning the White House, but then going out on the road and talking about the importance of his Irish identity and his Catholicism. I mean, it's just, it's an astonishing thing. Um, so there's, there's a sense in which, you know, not that he was the single handed author of the white ethnic revival and there were a lot of other things that were going into it, but those years, the Kennedy years, I think really laid a foundation for what was to come because he offered an example for white ethnics about how they might inhabit their own ethnic identity and still claim Americanism. That was a model that really didn't exist in the 1940s. As you said, the the JFK story on immigration really ends posthumously with the the signing of the Hart Seller Act, which ends the national origins quotas, which had been in place, this racist system that had been in place, restrictionist and racist system that had been in place since the twenties, and that coincides with the official and popular rediscovery of Ellis Island. Um, mm-hmm. Initially, it was annexed to the Statue of Liberty National Park by President Johnson as part of public relations around liberalizing immigration laws. Mm-hmm. But Ellis Island today is so, and for decades, has been so familiar that yeah. it's hard to believe that most Americans really didn't know much about it at all. Or had never heard of it. That was one of the most surprising things to me because I grew up, I was born in 1958. So I came to, I came of age, you know, really amidst all of the things that you and I are describing right now. Um, so to discover that there was a time not long before I was born when the average American had no idea what Ellis Island was or, or what the phrase referred to or what the stories were that were attached to it, um, there was a group um, who wanted to, to turn Ellis Island into an immigration museum in the 1950s, and they got absolutely no traction, zero. There was just nothing about that project that captured anybody's imagination. 
um, the people who knew the island best were the people who had been there. And the, the, the last thing they wanted to do was remember it, right? They wanted to forget it. And it took their, it took their children and their children's children to have the kind of romantic attachment that would then turn into an Ellis Island museum. Um, but it went from, I mean, to put this in kind of marketing terms, Ellis Island itself went from kind of zero name recognition in the 1950s to one of the most, uh, really the most, one of the most popular tourist destinations in the United States a couple decades later. I want to detour to look at some passages from, from Johnson's speech. Mm-hmm. at the foot of the Statue of Liberty as he's signing the the Hart-Seller Act. And I think it's an incredibly revealing speech uh, as a case study in how liberal immigration politics of the time, um, what they what they revealed about so much about liberal Cold War American politics as a whole. The first thing that I want you to respond to is um, he says, Our beautiful America was built by a nation of strangers from a hundred different places or more. They have poured forth into an empty land, joining and blending in one mighty and irresistible tide. The land flourished because it was fed from so many sources, because it was nourished by so many cultures and traditions and peoples. And from this experience, almost unique in the history of nations, has come America's attitude toward the rest of the world. We, because of what we are, feel safer and stronger in a world as varied as the people who make it up, a world where no country rules another, and all countries can deal with the basic problems of human dignity and deal with those problems in their own way. Now, under the monument which has welcomed so many to our shores, the American nation returns to the finest of its traditions today. <laughs> then, he, then he says something that contradicts that last sentence. The days of unlimited immigration are past, but those who do come will come because of what they are and not because of the land from which they sprung. Right. So let's, yes. So there's, let's start with the empty land. I mean, that, you know, that, um, that conceit, uh, in both meanings of that word, um, that conceit about the the peopling of the United States as, as, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking the way, um, the kind of liberalism of the immigration vision is just braided together with this completely retrograde kind of, of erasure of, of the actual settling of the continent and it's it's the actual nations who occupied it before um european conquest and immigration um there's just something kind of shocking about that uh and the the kind of facility with which he just skates over that terrain um the view of immigration as a source of strength. I mean, that was a pretty new idea in 1965. So that is, I mean, that's, that's pretty, I mean, I guess what, what I'm saying is that that speech marks off pretty beautifully the, the, the outer boundaries of mainstream American liberalism in 1965. Um, the kind of, uh, imperative to erase the ugliest features of American history to forget conquest, to forget slavery, uh, to kind of, 
create an origin story where the good the good immigrants um, from all over the world inhabit an empty nation you know that's pretty uh it's it's a conceit that's as shocking for its erasures as it is for its kind of self-congratulation the, the days the days of unlimited immigration are, are past is an interesting line, given that he's signing this liberalizing immigration bill, but he's making it clear that this will, is not a return to the status quo anti prior to the national origins quotas. You know, Ellis Island is a museum, and thus, at least implicitly, immigration is something that happened in the past more than it's about a present phenomenon. And in fact, he goes on, he also, I think it's LBJ that also says like this law is an important like symbol basically, but it's not going to change the makeup of the American people. It turns out he's wrong, but right, which is which is the argument that um, that Kennedy and his brother had always made that that you know this was going to be a family reunification act. It was going to bring in all the cousins from Ireland and Greece, but it really wasn't going to change the nature of America at all. That was one of the arguments. Um, the days of rapid industrialization are over. So not that many people are going to come. Um, yeah. So that, that kind of, um, that kind of assuaging argument to the foes of immigration is also built into what Johnson is announcing in that speech. So that's where some, that's where some of the tensions come from. It is an immigration bill, but, and yet he has to promise that not that many people are coming and it's not really going to change anything. Um, the notion that, um, immigration is our strength and that our, our stature in the world is related to our diversity at home. That, that really comes straight out of Kennedy's book, um, nation of nations or nation of immigrants. Um, yeah, that's a fascinating speech and it's very much a relic of its time. Um, the European aspect of this is important though, because in the both, you know, in the, in the arguments that Kennedy and, and, uh, and Robert Kennedy, um, themselves made about the immigration law uh, and the general debate in you know in the House and Senate over immigration um, the promise was and what became clearer and clearer was they really were only talking about Europeans coming and so when the results of the 1965 act turned out to be quite different by the 70s it became clear that um, the people who were really going to show up for this were going to be from Latin America, from uh, from Asia, from the Pacific, um, later from Africa. Um, that just changed. I mean, that that totally changed um, the politics of the whole question. And in a sense, the politics we've been living with for the last 20 years and more, um, we were kind of teed up for that by the promise that the immigrants were actually going to be Europeans. Another passage of the speech that I think is really important is one that shows how liberal immigration politics of the time not only served to erase the U.S.'s settler colonialist roots, which the last passage also did, but also to legitimate the present-day American colonialism of the time. He says, When the earliest settlers poured into a wild continent, there was no one to ask them where they came from. And by eliminating that same question as a test for immigration, the Congress proves ourselves worthy of those men and worthy of our own traditions as a nation. And then he goes on to say, and so it has been through all the great and testing moments of American history. Our history this year we see in Vietnam, 
Men there are dying. Men named Fernandez and Zajac and Zelenko and Mariano and McCormick. Neither the enemy who killed them nor the people whose independence they have fought to save ever asked them where they or their parents came from. They are all Americans. It was for free men and for America that they gave their all. They gave their lives themselves. You know, the thing, jumping ahead a little bit, I mean, the thing that that makes me think of is um, George W. Bush, his speech on the first anniversary of 9-11, where does he go to give that speech? He goes to Ellis Island and he, he says something very similar to what you just said. I mean, he talks about he talks about American diversity as the reason why we're beloved around the world, the reason why it's in the world's interest to band together with us and fight this war on terror. I mean, there's a whole litany of things that the world needs to do on our behalf. But the linchpin of it is the ways in which since we represent the world kind of demographically, um, we also represent the world symbolically. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way, uh, the the politics of this are are kind of cobbled together with certain um remembrances and erasures in this very strange pattern and then the last line and i'm sorry because this speech is just full of gems is when he announces that he was ordering the admission of cuban refugees uh, who seek freedom and he makes a point of leveraging that to proclaim american exceptionalism or as evidence of American exceptionalism, that we are a chosen nation. He says, The lesson of our times is sharp and clear in this movement of people from one land to another. Once again, it stamps the mark of failure on a regime when many of its citizens voluntarily choose to leave the land of their birth for a more hopeful home in America. The future holds little hope for any government where the present holds no hope for the people. I mean, we can break down the, 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 the kind of pro-immigration politics of our current moment. Um, part of it is based on, on notions of justice that are rooted in, in kind of social questions of, of race and equality. Um, but some of it is, is um, kind of liberal pro-immigration politics now even is rooted in something very similar to what you just read, which is yeah. a, a kind of a sense that, um, that the story of the story of mass immigration to the U S is the story of American exceptionalism. Um, in that it's the story of choice worthiness. We are the nation that people chose to join. And, um, that's a really, that's been an important part of the national narrative, um, you know, for a generation and more. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to the dig a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Transmission, is now available in print and online and is full of great pieces that just might be perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that might be of particular interest is former Dig guest Ari Brostoff's review of Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism, which was reissued this spring by Verso Books. 
In the essay, Brostov considers the centrality of the family unit within the mid-century American Communist Party and in contemporary left organizing, and reflects on their own family's political commitments and divides. Quote, McCarthyism tore many communist families apart, but only strengthened domestic ties in others. Ejected from the public sphere, party life was pushed more deeply into the private one, writes Brostov. Quote, Sometimes I worried I didn't have the right genes to be a leftist. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year's subscription to N Plus One in print. Go to nplusonemag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig at checkout. That's one word, the dig. You'll get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's nplusonemag.com slash the dig. The white ethnic revival, as we've discussed at various points already, is a form of remembrance that's also very much about forgetting. And one of the big icons of this is the is the the immigrant the white ethnic ghetto of the past and the black ghetto of the mm-hmm. present. And it's a time when black ghettos are in revolt and it's at that very same moment that many white Americans begin to yearn for their own ghetto story. But it's mm-hmm. a ghetto story that has an entirely different trajectory. It's a story of determined bootstrap overcoming of hardship that that both implicitly but but often very much explicitly is contrasted against black Americans ongoing plight. Explain yes. a little bit about how that how that works. The centerpiece of it is is the thing that undergirds it and that is for the most part invisible, but it's crucial, is that for most for most um, white immigrant and later white ethnic families, whether it's a trajectory over two generations or four, for the most part, the trek from the immigrant ghetto to um, to the suburbs and to wider American uh, success were undergirded by housing laws that were racialized such that the very thing that got them out of the ghetto and into the suburb is the thing that has locked African-Americans into the ghetto. So, I mean, that's, there's something very perverse in that, but, um, you know, the, the CF crabgrass frontier, CF origins of the urban crisis, there's, but yeah, but no one knows this stuff. (laughs) The 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 um, housing laws, you know, housing laws in the in the 1930s, um, really codified in law um, the kind of informal racism of of real estate practices uh, in such a way that um, in the post-war period, when when um, suburbs were being built. Um, you know that the move from city to suburb was really a government subsidized move it was it was underwritten by mortgage guarantees it was underwritten by the gi uh, the gi bill it was underwritten by all of these structural governmental kind of policy uh instruments that that um made it made it very, very easy for whites to leave the city and to move into the new suburbs and made it almost impossible for African-Americans to do that. So, so that's one piece of it is, 
um, there's this kind of remove from the city center that then becomes the site for the romance about the earlier period. Um, that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is this kind of, um, uh, this sense that, you know, we made our, we made our way out. So anybody could do that. That's how America works. I mean, that's become one of the standard through lines of American conservatism since the 1960s is here's how America works. You get off the boat, you live in a ghetto, you work your way up, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you, you know, you move uh, to the suburbs, you, uh, you borrow against your house and you send your kids to college. And, you know, within three generations, you got it made. That is like the standard narrative of how, the, how how this country works. It has only worked that way for white people. And, impl- and at least implicitly, but also explicitly by contrast, if if multiple, ge- if, if three generations in, four generations in, whatever, you're still in the ghetto, then it's not America's fault. It's your fault. Exactly. And then, and then the, the privilege that structures that multi-generational experience is written back into the romance of the immigrants themselves. And so so there's this um, there's this romance about you know who, who the, the kind of robustness and the hardworking and and all the stuff about who the good old immigrants were, um, and it's proven by where they ended up or where their families ended up over time, um, and then that romance is used as the barometer for measuring um, current day ghetto dwellers, whether they're black or Latino. Or, or or newly arrived immigrants um, from China or wherever, um, the standard, um, the kind of barometer by which the peoples of America are measured is not a, a reality so much as it is a romance or a kind of icon of romance. And and Richard Nixon has a sort of paradigmatic remark on this while he's delivering the when he's dedicating the American Museum of Immigration on Liberty Island in 1972 he says about immigrants they believed in hard work they didn't come here for a handout they came here for an opportunity and they built America right and you know exactly what he's talking about and clearer <laughs> so did everyone else yeah so that, that you know that freshly minted immigrant romance, which at that point is only a couple of years old, is, is pressed immediately into the service of um, kind of anti-affirmative action, anti-welfare rights, anti-like all of the anti-everything that the civil rights movement had been had been fighting for, the kinds of equity and equality that the that the civil rights movement had been fighting for. Like racism more generally, this also serves certain political economic ends under American capitalism in this sense, in this case, uh, to legitimate the the myth of upward mobility. First, yeah. in this moment when black Americans are demanding an end to their exclusion from upward mobility, and then as the long crisis for working class Americans as a whole takes hold in the 70s, and intergenerational economic mobility begins to evaporate. I think it serves like a, a, a similar purpose in two different moments in your book. You know, the invisibility of, I, you know, it's hard to w- know whether to call it invisible or or forgotten or willfully forgotten. Maybe it's some of all of those things. But um, the lack of, of awareness about structural advantage is, I mean, it's just been a detriment to our, our public discourse, you know, for two generations now. I mean, most most white people... Uh, in America have no idea that um, the house they grew up 
in was uh, was theirs by virtue of their race, or that the loan that their parents got to send them to college was a loan that was open to them because of their race, or that the promotion that their grandfather got, or or the the modest suburban house their grandfather was able to to buy in the 1930s. Uh, became his by virtue of the Jim Crow union that he worked in. You know, there are like a thousand ways that that structural advantage is uh, is central to the uh, to the European immigration and to the white ethnic story, uh, and it's just been totally erased. Such that I mean, I think, and that's an important compound now in what we're experiencing as the kind of politics of of white displacement in Trump's America. There's this, you know, this very powerful vitriolic politics of white, of, of white displacement or white grievance um, with no sense that there ever has been such a thing as white privilege. I want to talk about neoconservatives a little because you show that, that the white ethnic revival is that they are absolutely essential to the movement's formation. And there's a lot that's really interesting here. But one thing that that really surprised me was how many of them were preoccupied with their white ethnic identities vis-a-vis black Americans well Mm -hmm. before they turned to the right. Um, Michael Novak, who is an important figure in this story, wrote about how he struggled to explain to people, quote, that my great, and this is before he turned to the right, that my grandparents never saw an Indian. They came to this country after that, nor were they responsible for enslaving the blacks or anyone else. They themselves escaped serfdom barely four generations ago. He writes the rise of the unmet multiple ethnics in 71 as a member of the new left, but you really see the sort of germs of what developed into his neoconservatism in -hmm. in that book as well. Well, that book, that's a really important book because it's such a, um, it's such a rich articulation of, of what, white ethnic identity means uh, or meant to a certain generation at a certain moment. And, and like you say, I mean, you can, you can see both the rightward and the leftward tilt in it, um, in his very words, but that's, that's true. I mean, I think even, you know, for him by then, he'll take a, a sharp turn to the right over time. Um, but even at that moment and progressive though, he would, he would, um, claimed to be in that moment, he was already kind of marking his, well, he was marking his distance from white, from white privilege, basically. You know, when he says my, my grandparents never saw an Indian or, or owned slaves or whatever. I mean, and his grievance for being accused of possessing it. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's relational. I mean, white ethnic identity is is relational from the start. It's not pure. It's not, it's not, adopted in a vacuum and it's not um it's not innocently adopted either it's very much adopted relationally in this context where um you know kind of race identity and power are are being hotly contested in the american setting and there's irving crystal as well who also focused on white ethnics before his right turn in in 1990 after the turn he said it may be noted in passing that discrimination did not prevent Jews from acquiring wealth, education, influence. It created hurdles, but not impossible barriers. Another important figure was Nathan Glazer, mm-hmm. um, who – what was most interesting to me about your analysis of his trajectory was that he he didn't just have this um, 
this narrative about uh, this bootstrap narrative about white ethnics working their way out of the ghetto, he described them as very different sort of ghettos than the current black ghetto and saw in the white ethnic ghetto this kind of conservative utopia of sorts where there were all these community institutions Mm -hmm. that were then supplanted by state institutions. Yes. So the the kind of anti-statist, the anti-statist brand of conservatism really emerges in this context of, you know, kind of looking back at the old, um, the old good ethnic ghetto. Um, uh, I can't remember who it was, um, who, there's a phrase from Burke, small platoons, it's the small platoons of society that will, yeah, whatever that became, that became a very, um, an important tenet to conservatism after the, the 1970s or so. And it was very much rooted. I mean, it was rooted in a kind of anti new deal politics and anti, especially anti great society politics, kind of big state liberalism, um, but it, it, it found its, it found its favored fables and stories in, um, in stories about the immigrant ghetto. And the, the notion that the immigrant ghetto was somehow, somehow existed independently of the state or that these white ethnics worked their way out of the ghetto without help of the state. I mean, obviously absurd for reasons we've already well, yes, discussed. And, the, <laughs> and, you know, I, I accuse, <laughs> I accuse them, uh, you know, those, that group of intellectuals knew better than to, uh, than than to not know about the structural advantages that they enjoyed. Yeah. Um, they chose they chose to conceal those and to write them out of history. Yeah, it's intellectually dishonest. It's not a matter of opinion or or interpretation. Right. Okay, the last uh, thing on uh, the neocons that I want to discuss is Norman Potter's 1963, infamous 1963 commentary essay, also written before he had identified as having turned right, My Negro Problem and yours. And it's incredibly revealing of a lot, most notably his fears and anxieties around black people. And he suggests the only solution to that is miscegenation. And you write, like those 19th century abolitionists before him who advocated the colonization of Africa by America's freed slaves, no matter how powerful his professed yearning for justice, Potteritz was finally enabled to imagine a smoothly functioning American polity in which discernible blacks continued to exist. It, explain that essay, what it reflected about um, Potteritz's thinking and what it reflected about the where where the coming neoconservative movement was heading. I mean, I think it embodies a lot of the things we were just talking about in terms of um, its understanding of American success. And... and you know, like like someone like Novak, I mean, I think he he feels misunderstood as a white ethnic. I think he feels as though he's been kind of misinterpolated into a history that is not exactly his own. Um, so it's partly that too. That essay is partly that grievance about we're called privileged, but I don't really see it. When I was growing up, you know, we were not only were we poor, 
But I looked around and there were a lot of black kids in the neighborhood who seemed to be better off than I was. And there's also, I mean, we should say here, there's an undercurrent of a kind of anxiety about masculinity that runs through the essay, too, that is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, its own thing. It's in, it's imbricated here. It's hard to it's hard to tease it out and separate it. But it, it, it's kind of an independent dream in, the, in his thinking. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the essay itself is less less interesting and less important than um, than the way it was kind of seized upon as an important articulation of something that had real resonance for people. Um, I think, I can't, you said 1963 is when that essay was? I believe so. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's one of those really early articulations that um, Moynihan and Glazer's Beyond the Melting Pot. There were a couple of things from right, and and, and that was the year of, of of Kennedy's return to Ireland. There are a bunch of things right around that time, sixty three, um, that that mark in a real way the beginning of this new kind of discourse about American identities in the plural uh, and about ethnic particularisms as a way to kind of understand the American success story. And I would I would put Potteritz's essay kind of towards the beginning of that tradition, which then becomes a very long tradition. Speaking of Moynihan, various institutions of of black life are are indicted by facets of the white ethnic revival. We've talked about the the black ghetto, but obviously the black family was very important as well. It's at this moment that there's this kind of, you know, in a sense, it's a revolt against wasp dominance you write a, a form of of anti-modernism dissenting against the sort of sterile mid-20th century wasp consumer culture um mm-hmm. and it, it was a form of what you call familia values that these familia values of the warm immigrant family of intergenerational uh that has like big dinners together was really celebrated against the backdrop of the infamous Moynihan report, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which diagnosed infamous and influential Moynihan report, which diagnosed the black family as suffering from a tangled web of pathology. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's a, the, the Moynihan report is another instance where, where the, the, the measure of the measure of African-American status in the U S is, um, is the immigrant story itself, you know? And so, so someone like Moynihan can actually describe African-Americans as newcomers (laughs) to to America who just need to wait their turn for success because he's measuring their presence in the U S um, as the, um, their presence in the, in the Northern city. So like there's, there's no such thing as an African-American until the great migration. And then you can see that, you know, if their trajectory is true to the, the same trajectory that, that Jews and Italians and Greeks have followed, you know, just give them, give them a few more decades and they'll be fine. You know, so, so the, the kind of equation or the, the kind of false, false equivalencies between the African-American story and the immigrant story are, are very much written into um, Moynihan's whole way of understanding these questions. And that, that comes more to the fore in, um, in uh, Beyond the Melting Pot than in the Moynihan Report itself. But in the Moynihan Report, you do get, you know, the African-American family um, not only is kind of ripped out of the kind of structural context of, of what uh, what African Americans are faced with in the in um, the northern city in the mid twentieth century and after, um, 
but ripped from the context of the kind of, of um, structural racism that determines experience in a way that it actually never did for the earlier migrating groups. Um, so, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, the whole idea of the, the, the symbolism of the black family kind of proves the righteousness of the white ethnic family um, in this set of equations. Even and, the God, even the Godfather, which is about yes, criminals. Crime, <laughs> even, a family, even a crime family has values that are more robust than the tangled web of pathology that is the African-American family. And then the other thing is <laughs> that warmth. I mean, the idea of the ethnic hearth uh, and the warmth of the family and the old ways and the elders and all of that that's written into the into the ethnic romance is a, another it's a brand of 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 um, kind of anti-modernism that I think is really powerful in the mid 20th century. Um, Henry Miller called it the air conditioned nightmare. But if you really if you really want to get a sense of of. Um, you know, aside from the race question, what other ideological work is the the white ethnic revival doing? You know, read a book like some of those mid-century sociology tracts, like um, The Organization Man by William White, which where he describes kind of the scale, the big, big science, the big university, the big bureaucracy, the big corporation, um, the suburbs. There's 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 this kind of collectivization of American life and in life lived on a huge scale um, that people are very resistant to. And it becomes, it becomes the, uh, a site for kind of spinning out romances of simpler times. And that's part of what the ethnic revival is. And that's part of what the roots phenomenon was too. Um, kind of thinking about um, the upside of life as it was lived before migration, whether that was voluntary or forced migration, but the the upside of living in that old world village, um, I think, is is a kind of fitful protest against uh, the kind of bureaucratic, corporatized, large scale uh, uh, kind of antiseptic uh, kind of uh, social conditions that are coming to characterize um, mid century American life. We've talked about politicians, intellectuals, pop culture, but this was also really pervasive and powerful when it came to mass politics in terms of the mobilizations against school school and housing integration. Um, they were very much articulated in the language of white ethnic particularity. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book, maybe it's even cited in your footnotes, um, Up South, Civil Rights and mm-hmm. Black Power in Philadelphia by Matthew Countryman. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. uh, immediately I I went and found this this uh this passage in it after after reading your book. He's in one passage, he's writing about a conflict over black students at Bach High School in South Philly in the late 60s and there's just massive uh anger amongst the amongst white neighbors demanding that the school be closed because of the black students there and one sign at one of the protests reads, Italian power. One resident says, Italians are peace-loving people, but you try to touch me or my kid, that's when my Dago blood starts to boil. Touch us and we'll fight back. Um, during one march of white South Philadelphians, their, the sound truck had a Wallace for President sticker on it, and standing on that sound truck was a speaker who said, 
we don't care if you're Polacks or Jews. We want whites. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No. And you know, and you see that you see that everywhere in the North, especially you see that in the busing crisis in Boston, where it's it's mostly it, um, Irishness, but sometimes Italianness is deployed uh, as the kind of language of, of grievance and prior right. Um, you see it in Milwaukee. Um, where where poles are are kind of defending their neighborhoods um, against the incursion of African Americans, um, that white ethnic particularity becomes one of the languages of you know, you know of who belongs and who doesn't in in certain neighborhoods, especially during these you know during the the long period of integration, which we are still in, by the way. <laughs> That's another piece yeah. of it is that, you know, 1954 didn't exactly clean everything up. And so, um, so there was a period, I don't, I haven't heard it in a while. I think that was more, a, it was more a language of the late sixties and seventies and maybe on into the eighties. Um, but, but white ethnic particularity, um, through that stretch was a very a common language of, of white prior rights in that, in that kind of setting. And the kind of fighter spirit, by the way, is one of the, one of the reasons why, um, white ethnics kind of rally around old world symbolism, whether it's, um, whether it's it's modern day Israel and the kind of fighting spirit of the Israeli army, or whether it's the solidarity movement in Poland, or whether it's the long history of kind of obstreperous resistance in Ireland, um, the, the old world historical identity are also mobilized and and uh, as as important icons and symbols for these very localized American struggles. In some sense, I feel like these these stories are about migration all the way down in the sense that first you have the the white ethnic revival and the story that it tells about non-WASP immigration. And then second, you have the reaction to the black great migration from the South and the incredible both structural and popular reaction that meets it. And then third, you have the white migration to the suburbs, which was itself sort of a recapitulation of the pioneer story. It's yes. Like it's all about movement and people's relationship to place not to get too abstract <laughs> yeah no but it's about race and space i mean race race is always re relational and it's often geographical you know and so um you know the sense and this is what we see like when you know when um you know when white people are calling the cops because a black person is you know sleeping on a couch <laughs> or is you know sitting in a starbucks you know that has to do with the way that places are raced in in people's imaginations and who belongs where and are not is is often a racial question and and yeah and, and it is uh in part um in part, it's because um, space is political and it, it organizes power. But in part, it is, as you're saying, because because racial history in this country is rooted in migration, you know, from from the first, con you know, from the encounter and conquest onward, um, space has been raced. Ultimately, the, the, the Ellis Island immigrant mythology becomes a cornerstone of the contemporary anti-immigrant movement that we're living with today, because Ellis Island is a counterpoint not only to the black ghetto, but also to the southern border. Most white ethnic immigrants, their families had entered as, as free white persons, which for years was a status denied to people of African descent and Native Americans. And until Asian. 1952, yeah, and Asian, Asians. Asian, right. You write 
Ironically, nativist thinking in a settler democracy like the United States must somehow consecrate previous waves of of immigration, even as it laments the arrival of the most recent immigrants. Um, So there's this contrast between the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant, the assimilable immigrant versus the hopelessly alien immigrant, the immigrants who came the right way versus those who came illegally. Um, Say a little bit about how Ellis Island mythology shaped shapes the the contemporary nativist movement that ultimately helped bring Donald Trump to power. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that's another place where the narrative conceals as much as it reveals or conceals more than it reveals. There's more erasure than actual memory in the tale of European immigration. So if you go back and look at the historical record, you know, look at what nativists were saying about Jews and Italians in 1907. And it is exactly the same thing that Donald Trump is saying about Mexicans in in 2018. Um, Exactly. They're unassimilable. They're no good. They're no good people. They're bad students. They aren't smart. You know, you just go through the list of, of, um, of arguments against them and it's an unchanging list. You can go back into the, to the 1840s and find people saying exactly the same things about the Irish. So, that piece of it has been erased. Um, the the romance, um, the romance that white ethnics have with their own families' history is that they they came, they adopted American ways, they were greeted with open arms, and rightly so because they they were worth it. They were good bet for the republic, um, and they came legally. You know, not to not to mention that the category of illegal immigrant as as we know it in uh in 2018 did not exist until the law of of 1924 so i'm quite sure that my my grandfather who fled from tsarist russia um would have come here illegally if that was the only way he could have done it but because of the ways the law were written, there wasn't a way for him to, to he couldn't have been an illegal immigrant because the, the categories were such that he could only come, you know, there it just didn't exist. There wasn't a way to, to do that. <clears throat> so that's part of the forgetting. Some of the, the, the kind of grievance against illegal immigrants is based on a, a sense that we did it right. We did it right. And so why can't they? Um, but we're living in totally different times with totally different laws and they're faced with, you know, their own set of catastrophes just as our grandparents were and they're doing the best they can. But there's this um, kind of massive forgetting about what that history actually was and what it actually looked like if you're on the ground in 1907 or 1911. Um, And so the romance is standing in as part of the argument against um, today's today's migrants. Okay, final question. You can answer it to add whatever kind of parting shot, you know, to wrap up your contribution as well. You make it very clear in your book that the white ethnic revival is utterly central to the rise of modern conservatism. Some of the numbers you point to that beginning in 1972, majorities in the blue collar and Catholic vote predicted every election with the exception of 1988. You point to Italian American supports for Democrats plummeting from 77 percent in 1964 to 50 percent in 1968 to 39 percent in 1984. You point to working class Irish and Polish wards on Chicago's South Side going from strongly Democratic to shifting mostly to Republican in 1966, the very same year that King was leading protests for open housing in in Chicago, and they were met with spectacular white violence. Where do you see white ethnic politics and the politics of white ethnics standing today? A a, a left wing friend of mine from Staten Island um, 
told me that that that, that he believes that it's been in recent years uh, eclipsed by by new forms of ordinary white person reactionary ideology. I, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's probably some truth truth to that. You don't hear you don't hear the kind of specificities of of ethnic identity being articulated the way they were in you know 1972. Uh, on the other hand, I will say. Every time I think the white ethnic revival is gone for good, another another movie about an Irish boxer in Boston. <laughs> so, so I would not give up. I think that this is a cultural phenomenon that has a really long tail to it. I think that um, it's been dampened by a number of things. I think among them is um, is the total crushing of the union movement. I think that um, without unions. Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, I think that this the Southern strategy started in 1968, um, a way of kind of winning the white voters to the Republican Party has basically won and won really thoroughly, even uh, among uh, many white ethnics in the North. Um, and I I think part of that is the crushing of the union movement without without. Um, Without a robust union movement, um, the the Democrats have a much smaller claim on white ethnics than they did a generation ago. So that's that's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and absent that kind of of um, kind of structural and specific instrument for uh, economic gain. Um, on the left side of the of the political spectrum, um, I think it makes it much easier for people to be won over by the the myths and the the kind of uh, language of grievance that's articulated on the right side of the political spectrum. Um, it's this is again this is not to say that the ethnic revival is gone for good and it keeps it rears its head um, you know every few years when you least expect it. Um, and I think it is a robust part of national um, discourse even now. Um, you know, the, the, whether or not we hear people talking about them as Irish or Italian or, you know, um, articulating claims in that language, um, Ellis Island still is pretty central to our national narratives. Um, and so I don't see it being totally displaced yet. It's maybe the substrate of the current obsession with working class whites. Yes. Matthew Fry Jacobson, thank you so much. And thanks for such an incredible book. Well, thank you for saying so, and this has been a real pleasure. Matthew Fry Jacobson is the author of Roots 2, White Ethnic Revival in Post-Civil Rights America, and an historian at Yale. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the communists are approached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends, family, strangers you run into on the street about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going and to access our new weekly newsletter. Even a few bucks is a big help. Mm-hmm.